Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. How can you know if you're saved? How does one receive the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit? Can a Christian lose his salvation? Find out the answers to these challenging questions in our study of Acts chapter 8, verses 13 through 25. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you. Because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. In our last study, we learned two tremendously important points from Acts 8 so far. Number one, that Simon the sorcerer had become a Christian according to the consistent pattern of conversion in the book of Acts. And by all the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, he was at this point a saved person. Number two, that after the establishment of the churches in Samaria, a notice was sent to the apostles in Jerusalem that they were needed to impart the special gifts of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous gifts and ministries and activities, to use the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, so that in the absence of the completeness that would come to the Christian scriptures, which did not exist at this point, the infant church might grow and increase in edification and spiritual maturity. Dr. Mark Moore is fairly typical of modern commentators in suggesting that the apostles visited this work because the Christians back in Jerusalem were suspicious of this new non-Jewish movement and wanted to investigate it. Yet this is not at all what the text presents. I realize that it's difficult to imagine the apostles who had been so bigoted and prejudiced against the Samaritans just a few years earlier during the ministry of Jesus would not protest now against the concept of Samaritan evangelism. But if there was any protest or controversy, the Bible is absolutely silent about it. While on the other hand, Luke dedicates a great deal of space to recording the difficulties of the Jewish Christians with Gentile inclusion, and that seems to indicate that there was not a similar controversy over the Samaritans, strange as it may appear. Maybe Jesus' ministry and 
40-day post-resurrection sermon had convinced them on the Samaritan question. But the scripture indicates that word was sent to the apostles to let them know that they were needed, and they came with a very specific intention— to pray for the new Christians in Samaria that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Verse 17, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. From very ancient times, the laying on of hands was a ceremonial form of identification. It was not that the apostles had mystical power in their hands that transferred spiritual gifts to others, but rather those on whom they laid their hands were the ones who the Spirit had selected to receive gifts, and the Spirit would impart the gifts upon the public certification through the imposition of the apostles' hands, according to His will, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11. And this is why before the apostles laid hands on anyone, they prayed. The prayer was an invitation for the Holy Spirit to work through them and perhaps to inform them by a divine revelation whom he had chosen, similarly to the prayer they offered to Jesus during the ordination of Matthias as an apostle. The impartation of spiritual gifts through the laying on of the apostles' hands remains a consistent theme throughout the New Testament and will continue in the later chapters of the book of Acts. Verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. There are three major points I want us to consider from this text. First, that what the giving of the Holy Spirit was, was something Simon saw. I have stated throughout this study that I am trying to be a clean slate in developing a sense of what the book of Acts teaches about the work of the Holy Spirit, and I can identify already several areas in which my views on the subject have changed and grown. I have mentioned that before the end of our series I plan to give a special study presenting all my findings called the Pneumatology or Doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But there have been some areas where a fresh look has carried me right back to the same perspective I had before. The vast majority of modern commentators and conservative scholars will say that the presence of the Holy Spirit in any sense is a sure sign of salvation. They will tell us that the distinctions between the ordinary measure and miraculous measure of the Spirit, to use the language of the older generation of preachers, is an artificial distinction. Yet the conclusions these men and women reach when they move forward with that presupposition end up making the Bible so filled with exceptions that there's hardly any real sense in which we could claim rules or standards or patterns anymore. I believe the real problem lies in the antagonistic bias that so many modern Bible readers have against the concept of biblical patterns, especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we hear people all the time accuse those who look for any kind of orderliness or method in the Scripture of putting God in a box. And yet the God of the Bible clearly puts himself in boxes by the very nature of creation, 
we find that God made a self-limiting, free act when he brought creatures into being who have personal wills that could not only operate independent of his own, but even in contradiction to his own. That's what sin is, a free will creature rebelling against the will of God. And that's not a denial of sovereignty. In fact, it is an affirmation of it. Things are the way they are because God has willed it so. And even in the sense in which he has limited himself, he is so wise and powerful and perfect that he will certainly accomplish all of his purposes in history. In the same way, if we see methods and systems evident in the Scripture regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, the right thing to do is to accept them. If you have evidence that they're invalid, it ought to be presented and considered. But to reject out of hand the observations of others simply because one wants something that is more open-ended and mystical is irresponsible. In the book of Acts, salvation only and always follows faith in Christ, repentance toward the Lord Jesus, and immersion in water. We've seen that consistently so far, and I am confident that we will continue to see it hereafter. Again, I say, whatever relationship the Holy Spirit has with all saved people, he begins to have it when a person is baptized And whether it can grow stronger or weaker or altogether cease in the future, only the Scripture can tell us. Both plain statement and the inspired history of Luke's record unanimously support that under the reign of Jesus Christ, people are saved when they obey the gospel, not before and not at some indeterminate period afterward. The fact of the matter is that there are works of the Holy Spirit that in context seem to be limited to his empowering men and women to work miracles or do other supernatural things. When the phrase, come upon, meaning to overtake, is used with the Holy Spirit as the subject and a person or thing as the object, the meaning is always miraculous. The Samaritans who obeyed the gospel were fully saved but they lacked the miraculous manifestations of the Spirit's power until those were granted to them by the Spirit through God's appointed means, the imposition of the apostles' hands. This is the second point. Sometimes people, for the same you-can't-put-God-in-a-box reasons mentioned above, balk at the idea of appointed means such as human preaching for learning the truth or baptism in water for the remission of sins. But here is a clear example. The church in Samaria needed the gifts of the Spirit, and it is ultimately the Spirit who gives them. Would it have been possible for him to grant these gifts without the apostles traveling all the way from Jerusalem to pray and put their hands on people? Who would dare deny the Spirit power to do anything? But he did not give the gifts to anyone but those upon whom the apostles laid their hands. Even with a need, even with an inconvenience, God had appointed a means, and the means was the way the Spirit worked. The third point. Only the apostles were appointed to identify the recipients of the gifts of the Spirit. Philip was himself a miracle worker. If Luke is telling the truth, and we believe he is, that the gifts of the Spirit were given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
then we must conclude that at some point in the past they had laid their hands on Philip. However, he was not able to do the same to others. He was there in Samaria, but Peter and John had to come down from Jerusalem because through the laying on of the apostles' hands was the Holy Spirit given. Unless it can be shown that at some point in the history of the early church, this appointed means was changed and the Spirit was given without the hands of the apostles, the clear implication is that the gifts of the Spirit would only be given to the church as long as the apostles were alive and active in the world. When the generation to whom the Spirit gave gifts through the apostles died, those gifts would cease from the world. But if we're correct and the completeness for which the gifts were a partial support came through the Christian scripture, then there's no problem there. All Christian scripture was given and the collection closed and settled by apostolic supervision before they died. Even without these gifts of the Spirit today, we have not been orphaned or left wanting in any real need by God. In fact, we will see that there are other ways the Spirit works as well that had no such limitation attached to them, but for these works, we must recognize that God is telling us there was a limitation. Through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were given. Now Simon saw this, and in the typical language of sin throughout the scripture, he sought to take that which he saw. And he sought to take it by the means which he was accustomed to using from his old life. He had formerly been a huckster and a charlatan who duped and deceived others out of their money. Luke speaks of this part of his life as something past. He uses the same terminology the Apostle Paul used to speak of his own past, which he had left by repentance. And we have no reason to deny Simon the same experience. The Bible says he had become a Christian and implies through that he left his sorcery behind. But it is a very important principle to learn that conversion, and even repentance, is not an instantaneous absolute transformation. It is a change of mind that manifests ultimately in a reformation of character and life. James wrote to Christians and told them that they still had Christian character to gain in order to their perfection, and they also had what the old King James Version calls superfluity of naughtiness to lay aside, James 1.21. Now, the meaning of that expression is an excess or overflow of wickedness, or more simply, as the New American Standard Version says, all that remains of sin in a person's life. These people are Christians. They have been for years, it seems, and yet there are sinful habits and attitudes that remain in their lives that still yet must be purged if they are to move forward in Christ. The Apostle Paul said the same sort of thing to the congregations in Ephesus and Colossae. Long after their conversions, he said that not only was their Christian character and godly attributes yet for them to put on— but there was also certain behaviors and attitudes, some very serious and offensive, that they needed to put off from the old man, the former life. The presence of carnality and avarice in Simon does not mean that he was not a real Christian or had not been truly saved. 
In fact, if complete spiritual maturity and Christian character is required for one to have had a genuine conversion, then I'm afraid I was not converted, and I don't believe I ever met a man or woman who was. Carnal and immature Christians are a reality, and this is the condition of essentially every Christian shortly after their initial conversion to Christ. So this is how we should view Simon. But carnality and immaturity are dangerous, and they often lead Christians to commit grievous sin and to do things that are utterly contrary to their profession of faith in Jesus. And this was also the case with Simon. The exact nature of his sin is worth considering. Again, verse 18 says, When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. There's a word in modern ecclesiastical jargon that was coined from this account. It is the word simony. It refers to the practice of buying or selling official positions within the church. And that's based on the supposition that this is what Simon was trying to do here. Some have supposed that Simon intended to sell the gifts of the Spirit to others based on what Peter says to him after this, you thought the gift of God could be purchased. However, I think the real key is when Peter exposes Simon's bitterness in verse 23 as the foundation of all of his problems. Recall that before his conversion, Simon was essentially a cult leader. He was a man of tremendous power and authority, and it is true he may have used that position for financial gain or immoral purposes, but regardless, people thought he was someone great. In becoming a Christian, he went from being viewed as God in the flesh to being viewed as just another sinner saved by grace. Even if he was truly convinced and believed the truth about Jesus, pride and jealousy are extremely dangerous poisons that lead to bitterness which blinds the understanding and binds the conscience from discerning between good and bad. What was the consequence of his sin? This is an extremely important question. What happens to a Christian who allows the passions of the flesh or the pride of life to overtake them as the guiding principle of their conduct. Verse 20 says, But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you. Because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. There are several key points to draw from these words. First, there can be no reasonable disputation that Simon was lost. Peter says, your money perish with you. Literally, this means you and your money go to hell. God will destroy both it and you. He says that Simon's heart is not right in the sight of God, he is condemned, and he is poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. We've already established that Simon was saved, and now he is lost. He was a saved person, but now he once again stands condemned in the sight of God, and he's going to hell. Now, if that's unacceptable to one's theological system— then your theological system is wrong, and it needs to change. 
This is the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit, and it will not do to argue with it. Peter says the essence of the sin was that Simon thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. That is, he wished to use that which was designed to promote the glory of God to promote the glory of Simon. And he thought he could buy it and work his way to it through carnal and worldly means. And in his carnality, he was treating something holy as common, which has always incurred the wrath of God. When Peter says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, I don't believe he's talking about the ministry of imparting the Holy Spirit because he says the reason Simon is excluded from this matter is that his heart is not right in the sight of God. But even if it were, Simon was still not an apostle. Thus, Peter is saying that by his conduct, Simon has removed himself from the kingdom of God and all the blessings associated with it. He has neither part nor portion in Christ's kingdom. That is a grim and dreadful thing to consider, and it is just as possible for any of us as it was for Simon. The Apostle Paul said that he himself exercised self-discipline and self-denial every day, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. But there was a solution. We're confident that Simon had not blasphemed the Holy Spirit or utterly repudiated his faith in and loyalty to Jesus because Peter responds with a message of hope. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. I realize, of course, there's still a grim tone in these words, but the message of hope to one still in sin will always sound a little grim. Repent or else. Repentance and prayer were Peter's prescription for Simon's forgiveness. Note that he did not tell him to believe on Jesus Christ or to be baptized. Luke, of course, reported he had already done both of those things. Thus, when a Christian falls back into sin and becomes lost and condemned, the solution is to turn back to Christ and pray for pardon. Peter says, if perhaps, to emphasize the necessity of sincerity and genuineness on the part of Simon, not to imply any kind of fickle capriciousness or unyielding harshness on the part of God, as though we might catch him on an unforgiving day. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Acts 8 and verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. The Bible teaches that when we become children of God through Christ, we become part of a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. There's a great deal of meaning in that expression, but one of the fundamental concepts is that we have access to the presence of God through Jesus to obtain grace in time of need, Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Simon clearly had that same privilege because Peter encouraged him to pray. But in times of great spiritual weakness and personal failure, it is both a good thing and a God-given right to ask for the prayers of others. James 5 verses 14 through 16 teaches. 
And I really believe Simon's response has the ring of the James 5 text about it. If that is so, we may be absolutely confident that Simon's request grew out of a confession of his sin. He certainly acknowledged that he was guilty before God, which is the essence of confession, and that the prayer of faith saved him and his sins were forgiven. Extra-biblical tradition is not kind to Simon. There are numerous myths about him that should at least in large part be rejected because they're clearly fanciful and apocryphal nature. But most sources depict him as a man in continuous trouble who continued to trouble the church until his ignominious and shameful death. It is not necessary for a Christian to accept these claims. If they are true, it is a very sad thing. But it's not necessary for us to believe them because the Holy Spirit did not include this information. The Bible uses Simon's story to teach three vital truths which we must learn. Number one, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, whoever he is and whatever he has done. Number two, the one who is saved can become lost again if he allows fleshly lust and pride to control his life. Number three, the Christian who sins is lost and can be restored to God through repentance and prayer. Verse 25, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Here we see the fullness of the apostolic ministry, not merely to impart the gifts of the Spirit, but to testify to the life, death, resurrection, and coronation of Jesus, and to preach the word of the Lord. As they traveled through the Samaritan villages journeying back toward Jerusalem, they visit Philip's converts, and they made more of their own. Many of the Samaritans had met Jesus and had come to believe in him as Messiah from his own preaching. Yet they were excluded in those days from John's baptism, so we wonder if during this tour, the apostles or Philip might have aided those first fruits of the truth in full obedience to the gospel. Perhaps this was the time when the woman Jesus met at Jacob's well was brought into full and lasting contact with the water of life in the kingdom of God and found an acceptable temple of God in her own land where she could worship in spirit and in truth. The kingdom has come, and the kingdom is spreading. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and
Trust and obey.